Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Yep, uh, I am Michael McKee. I am not Tom Keen. Tom Keen is on vacation today, nor am I David Gura. He is on vacation as well. How that happened is the subject of a presidential investigation, and we will let you know probably sometime on Friday when the two of them have had the complete week off. Joining me instead, Francine Lacroix from our Bloomberg London Bureau as we bring you Bloomberg Surveillance. Well, uh, Francine, it is uh, an honor to be with you again. It's like an alumni reunion here uh, <laughs> know, it's fun. for the two it's of like us. It's like the are out and we get to play. Exactly. At the uh, back of the bus. The two of them. How they <laughs> both managed to get the week off is, you know, it's kind of amazing to us. And how they did not offer for you and I to do this show live from Hawaii with Barack Obama and Shinzo Abe. Uh, <laughs> or Florida. Or Florida. We'll, we'll take Donald anything, Trump, really. Any, a little bit of Any sun. place warm, yeah. <laughs> so we get started on this weekend. I might mention, uh, friend, that when you and I started with Bloomberg Surveillance on TV, futures in the U.S. were lower. They are higher now, as I mentioned, and that uh, suggests that uh, maybe we see another rise this week. Michael Holland is the chairman and founder of Holland & Company. Uh, I showed a, a chart earlier on Bloomberg Television that basically showed since Election Day, Michael, the stock market, the three major indexes, the Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ, had all gone rocketing up right after the election and then flattened out. We're getting gains, but they're very small now. So as we go through the rest of this year, the, the four days remaining to set your portfolio for your year-end close, and then into 2017, does the Trump rally continue, or are we finally at a point where, okay, we've priced in an awful lot, let's wait and see what happens? Uh, the adult in us would, would go for the latter, Michael. You'd, you'd say that uh, we've, we've come a very long way, and why don't we uh, just uh, consolidate these gains? The history, however, argues against that. And the history is that the last five trading days of the year in the U.S. market are decidedly up. I mean, you go back to 1928, and it's uh, it's it's pretty uncanny. It doesn't mean that, that it's every year. It doesn't mean it'll happen this year. But history would argue that the last five days are up. What is the one thing, Michael, that you worry about 2017? I know we started discussing it also on television, but are we pricing things wrong? Are we miscalculating risk? Yeah, Francine, we made a slight reference in the early hour about the the fulfillment of the promises that the market is looking for from the new Trump administration. If there's a serious glitch in in the activation of these these things, absolutely, the market the market would take that I think very badly. And and the other thing is is a, a trade war with China. Uh, when when uh, Trump uh, uh, appointed uh, uh, Mr. Navarro to this new trade council, which he's created, uh, Mr. Navarro is a serious uh, critic of uh, China. He's written two books about it, and he's uh, someone. If uh, 
Trump listens to him, we could see it. I, I don't think we're going to get a trade war, but it, if we got a trade war, that would that would actually be a fairly serious thing. Smoot-Hawley uh, uh, redux. One of the uh, interesting questions that comes up is um, how much more can we get out of a Trump rally if it's going to continue when you consider that the S&P multiple is 22 now? Everybody says, well, you know, Ronald Reagan came to office and ignited a big stock market rally, but the multiple then was, you know, one or two because we were <laughs> in the Volcker era. Oh, those were wonderful uh, days. Rates were 18 percent and, and the market crashed during the two uh, back-to-back recessions. The only way we, we get a serious amount of uh, money made in the stock market from here, Michael, is for uh, the, this, the companies who are going to be beneficiaries of the prospective Trump changes for them to have much higher earnings. And that is a possibility. That's, in fact, that's not a, not a bad bet at this point. It doesn't mean it'll happen, but that's, that's where you have to look for it. But higher earnings, Michael, what's the catalyst for that? Uh, just greater economic growth around the world, Francine. That's why the, the trade war thing I referred to a second ago is, is such a, a nemesis to this thought process. If we actually get some comedy among the, the large powers over the next uh, economic powers over the next couple of years, and we actually get some uh, uh, upward uh, pr- propulsion of, of, of uh, economic growth, those those kinds of things. Uh, and this comes, it, it, it's, it's almost become a cliche in the last few months, but it's, uh, it, it does go back to uh, less regulation, lower taxes, and so on. Well, if we get that, um, who benefits the most? We've seen since the election, financials up 18%. i got to wonder how much more you can squeeze out of that, even with a rollback of Dodd-Frank. But is that where you put your money? Well, the, the one of the reasons, uh, basic reasons, Michael, for the financials doing so well is interest rates going up because people think we'll get a little bit of inflation, a little more growth. If neither of those occur, if we get no inflation and we get no growth, of course, you're going to lose money in the financials, for, at least for that part of why they're up. Um, I think it's it's not a bad bet that you could get a 3% handle on the 10-year if this continues in the positive direction. Uh, if you continue to get uh, some economic growth that, that bespeaks higher uh, uh, earnings and, and greater demand for labor, you could get some more inflation. So both of those things would argue that the, the money, the, the Brian Moynihan's of this world and the Jamie Dimon's are going to make more money because they're going to have an interest rate structure they can invest in. You know this as well as anybody. <laughs> more money, friend, for Jamie Dimon. What a surprise. But there you go. The problem, and, and that is also coupled with regulation or deregulation in this case, which we talked about a, a little bit, Michael. But overall, are you concerned about inflation coming back worldwide, which would also mean that certain countries that can't really afford to raise rates need to because of rampant inflation? It, interesting the way you, you, you position the question, Francine. I, I think that technology today is 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 at a point where it by itself keeps inflation from becoming the nemesis that it was back in Michael referred to the 70s before. Um, we we had a situation there where su- supply and demand of commodities and labor were were uh, all screwed up. Today, because of technology and. and just popped into my head 3D printing. I mean, we, we just have so many ways of keeping prices down and costs down. I don't think inflation gets out of hand. That's that's my guess. Uh, 
Neil Dutta, who's coming on next uh, from Renaissance Macro, would argue with you and say we get inflation because just mechanically, with oil prices going up and the base effects happening, we're going to see closer to 3% inflation. Can the market handle that? Uh, you've answered my question with your question uh, because the, the fracking technology today is going to keep a lid on energy prices. I mean, just there's no question. We're only 10% into this fracking thing by some some estimates of, of experts who know a lot more about the, the energy industry than I do, Michael. Um, I, I think there's, there's, I think, are we going to get some more inflation? Yes. Do we get a lot more inflation? I think it's really highly improbable. What do you, what do you, uh, what do you think the upper limit to what is priced in, in terms of inflation? Right now, 2 to 3%. Which is where we'll be at the end of well, Neil says three percent at the end of the year. Yeah, I think that's fair. Do I think we're at four, five, six? I don't think so. I think I think it's just the opposite. I, I think the pressure will continue to be to try to get it up there, but with with uh, grudging moves upward. Michael Holland making the first prediction of 2017. Oh, yeah. yeah. It'll be wrong within days. <laughs> we'll, come back. we'll come back 365 days from now and check with you again. Michael Holland is chairman of Holland & Company. Always great to kick off the last week of the year. I'm sure your portfolio is up, you know, multiples of that. Been a good year. All right. There's your investor letter from uh, Michael Holland, the chairman of Holland & Company. Neil Dutta has not taken the entire week off. He's taking the rest of the week. You're going to go visit Francine. You're going to London. Uh, I am. To, to take advantage of the lower bound. He is chief economist <laughs> at uh, Renaissance Macro. Let me put you on the spot uh, right away here. We just had uh, Michael Holland on. says uh, there's no way we're going to get 3 to 4% inflation next year. But you say we are going to see higher inflation. Where do you see it going? Well, I mean, as I say, um, we're going to get there almost mechanically sometime. Get where? Up to 3% headline CPI inflation almost mechanically um, sometime in the first quarter of next year because of favorable base effects. So the fact that energy prices are rising uh, off the February lows uh, tells you that once we lap those base effects, you're going to get a push in headline inflation. But, of course, what, what I'm more focused on is what's going on with core inflation. And, um, you know, core inflation appears to be moving higher. Um, that's a function of, obviously, rents, so serve what's going on in the domestic services economy, uh, because stronger wage inflation is pushing upward pressure on service prices, um, and to some extent, medical care inflation, which had been very, very weak for a long time, uh, and now appears to be uh, moving up and to the right. So. Um, you know, you take that along with uh, the fact that unemployment has moved lower. Uh, inflation expectations um, appear to be um, stabilizing, uh, moving up to some extent. Um, and remember, Mike, a lot of what drives inflation uh, is just inertia, right? So, you know, what is inflation going to be tomorrow? Basically what it was yesterday. So the fact that it's moving higher, I think there's a momentum there. But Neil, uh, yeah, sorry, is, it, go is ahead, this Prince. a three to four percent inflation worldwide, or is it just on America? Because well, I don't. The, I don't think we're going to get fine, right? But the rest of the world can't cope at this point with three four percent inflation, or can it? 
I mean, I think that's what the that's what the rest of the world needs to some extent. I mean, I don't think we're going to get three or four percent inflation in the U.S. on the core, nor do I think we'll see it on the headline in a sustained way. But we'll probably get above the Fed's inflation target of two percent. Um, but I think that's actually what the global economy needs. I mean, the global economy is very weak, and uh, to some extent. Um, you know, the Fed is um, acting in some respects as a backstop for the global economy. And in that kind of environment, I mean, what should the Fed do? You basically let the U.S. economy run hot um, and allow inflation in the U.S. to drift uh, a bit higher to offset the disinflationary pressures everywhere else in the world. And I think the Fed is doing that to some extent. Um, that should, I mean, I know the dollar has strengthened of late, but that should put some downward pressure on the dollar, the dovish Fed. And, um, and, and that'll, uh, I think that'll bring some relief uh, to the global economy. And remember, the global economy, I mean, we were going into the year with horror stories about the global economy. All of these, st all of these forecasts have been absolutely wrong. I mean, we need to just sort of preface all of these conversations with that fact. I mean, if you look at the global manufacturing PMI, for example, I mean, the global economy um, is growing above trend for the first time in at least 18 months. End of discussion. Well, does this... Are you suggesting that 2017 will be a new paradigm? I hesitate to, to use the word new normal. Uh, but we've gone into every year since the recession ended, thinking things would be good, then getting gobsmacked in the first quarter right. by something. Is 2017 going to be different? I mean, let's hope it doesn't snow in New York, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, I, th I think that, well, I mean, th that is true to some extent. But remember, I mean, you know, in some respects, th I mean, 2017 looks a little bit different than previous years, right? I mean, for, for one, the markets and the Fed are going into 2017 pretty much in line, right? I mean, remember last year, Stanley Fisher was saying four hikes were in the ballpark. The market was saying, you know, barely two. Obviously, we know the markets were closer to what ended up happening. Um, so I think that's the first thing, is that remember that uh, the markets and the Fed are, are aligned uh, in terms of the forward market and the Fed dots for the first time in years. Um, and that mitigates some of the risk that you're talking about. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that uh, there's, no, there's no breakout expectation for growth among the consensus. I mean, I think in, if, if there's anything, there's a, there's a bit of complacency among the sell-side consensus. I mean, if you look at primary dealer forecasts in your own Bloomberg uh, consensus poll, um, you know, no one's expecting growth above, you know, 2.4 percent among the major primary dealers. I mean, they're all sort of telling you growth is going to be about what we saw over the last six or seven years, which is around 2.1 to 2.2 percent. I think that's a mistake. I mean, I think that there, there's a risk that growth actually surprises on the upside. I mean, remember that inventories have room to build. Capital spending appears to be improving. Obviously, consumer confidence is strong, which implies stronger consumer spending. Neil, um, what are the chances of something ugly? So I'm, I'm thinking of some kind of credit crunch in China or someone coming into power in Europe, for example, that spells the end of the European project. I mean, that's always a risk. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned China. Um, you know, China is something we're watching. I mean, um, they've had about 50 to $60 billion of outflows over the last uh, two months. I mean, um, you know, that's, that's a lot, even for China. Um, and it's hard to sustain that, um, in my view. Um, I do think, to some extent, uh, that risk is mitigated by the fact that uh, commodity prices are reflating, and that's keeping real interest rates lower than they otherwise would be in China. So that, that, that sort of is helpful. Um, you know, right. with respect to Europe, um, 
I mean, I think you're right. I mean, that's always a risk, but we've been, you know, it's not materialized for a, yeah. for, a, for, for a while. Neil, thank you so much. Neil Dutta there, Renaissance Macro Research Head of U.S. Economics. This is Bloomberg. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Now, let's get to Jonathan Golub. He's RBC Capital Markets, Chief U.S. Market Strategist. Jonathan, great to have you on this Tuesday morning, a cold but actually quite sunny uh, day in London. I'm not sure what New York is like, but I'm sure it's pretty much the same. And I'm here in South Florida, and it's it's nice and balmy. (laughs) All right, that's it. Interview's over. We're done. Forget it. Jonathan, when you look at the markets and when you look at you know interest rates, but inflation expectations really moving a lot of these markets uh, to record highs, is 2017 going to be more of the same, or can it only go down from here? No, I, I think it is going to be more of the same. And if, if we, what everybody talks about is this Trump rally really started uh, well before Trump's election in July when interest rates bottomed and inflation expectations bottomed. And the underlying story here is that we have near a 4.5% unemployment rate, and wage inflation is naturally beginning to pick up. And that's really what's fueling the change. And then, obviously, pro-growth policies on top of that are having an impact. You are um, – well, you're down in South Florida. You're not applying for a job, are you, with the guy down there who's hiring? Uh, no, well, you'll have me back, Mike, sooner than uh, sooner than everybody wants. You you uh, are one of the most bullish people on Wall Street uh, about the coming year. Let me ask you though. I mean, this is a question we've been asking all morning. Yes, maybe there are uh, there is the possibility we don't know yet of that uh, policies will be adopted that will boost growth. But uh, S and P earnings right now twenty two times. So um, how much more can you squeeze out of this rally? Well, I I think there's actually, um, there's a little bit of a fib in those numbers, which is that everyone on Wall Street expects there to be some, even if a portion of of the growth agenda gets put forward, people expect there to be more of of a positive hit to earnings. So whether it be taxes or regulation, um, you know, or, or fiscal spending, um, but Wall Street analysts never adjust their numbers until they have um, specifics. So what you have is a market or investors who are forced to try to figure out what the likely course is, but investors who are waiting. So the E is probably a little bit understated, and therefore, as a result, that PE or market valuation is nowhere near as onerous as, as the way you describe it. But isn't everything or, all, or most of it priced in? Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that, that, that that's the case, and I think that it starts um, with, with the, you know, where, where we start at the beginning, which is if this thing is solely about Trump policy and nothing else, 
I would argue that most of it, not all, but most of it's probably priced in. Um, and the reason I say that, for example, is my estimate is that the uh, the tax proposal would probably make something like an 8% move in the stock market. You'd probably get a couple percent move from the fact that interest rates are higher and that helps banks. Maybe the energy companies are 1% or 2% higher because oil prices have uh, bounced off the bottom, and that's be- better, and then another couple from regulation. So when you add that together, maybe we're halfway there. But what's underlying this, I think, which even pushes it up more, is that this really low inflation, low interest rate stagnation that we had, um, it, it kind of naturally comes to an end when you have unemployment well below 5%. You do get naturally get some inflation that helps corporate uh, sales and things of that uh, nature. And so you could get all that I talked about just a second ago, which is probably 10 to 15% upside post-election, and then get additional boost from the fact that uh, you get reflation in the broader economy. Uh, Neil Dutta from Renaissance Macro was making kind of uh, both points earlier on surveillance when he noted, yes, we're going to get more inflation just mathematically because of the base effects, but also with energy going up. But he also noted that uh, there's a lot of people have been attributing the stock market rally to the Trump election, but the economic fundamentals have gotten a lot better as well. So a certain amount of this is not Trump, uh, and the economy can keep improving. Right, and, and, that's, and, that was my, and that's, that's my point. I mean, we may have um, come to it slightly differently, um, but the market had already begun to move since July. And you also have to... Um, Remember, if you look at the um, business optimism, what, you know, NFIB is small business optimism. You have um, measures of, of surveys on larger business optimism. You have consumer um, surveys. They're all, uh, they've, they've all turned more positive. Now, th- I would assume that, that much of that has to do with um, change in the election outcome, but some of that may be that, that, that we are seeing some wage increases, and that does make people feel better. And also, when you have a tight unemployment rate, it also means means that if you want to find a job, there there's a better balance in the favor of people um, looking for work as opposed to jobs available. So all of that should naturally boost confidence, and, and that also should spur things. So I, I think that 17 um, really is making up for a, a good year, and, and the, I think the risk here is that you sit on the sidelines in what will be a, a pretty good year for, for markets. Now, if you were a bond investor, I wouldn't be saying the same things, but for a stock investor, for sure. Right, but what I'm struggling to understand, Jonathan, is, that, and I understand the premise, and I understand what you, you know how you explain it. But it's such an important change in your government in the U.S. that at this point, is it not too soon to understand exactly where it's going, what the policies will be? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a great question, and I'm hearing it every day from the largest, most sophisticated institutions. But the, the, the bottom line is if you are sitting running a pool of assets, whether it's for your family or whether you're running you know, billions of dollars for a pension plan or a mutual fund, you have to make a best guess on the path of things forward right now. And you don't have the luxury of saying, well, let's wait until everything is in, and then let's try to figure out what to do. So the question you have to say is, okay, let's just, let's just look at what the tax proposal is. How much would that benefit corporate profits? When I do that, I get about 8%. Some get smaller, some get bigger. 
uh, in some, some different people who analyze the same uh, information. And if I, if I say, okay, well, let's put some odds on that. Do we think it's a 50-50 odds of chance uh, of occurring or 75? And then you need to trade on that. And so you don't have that luxury. We love it, but that's just not what we're faced with. And so I think the market being up, you know, 5 or 6% since the election, like I started the conversation, is probably discounting half of the benefit. Um, and so some of the world is, Francine, doing exactly what you're saying, which is they're waiting till there's more information, and half the world is jumping forward. And that's why there's a little bit more juice left, uh, left in the orange, if you will. All right. I, I like the way you put that, Jonathan. Thank you so Man's much. Jonathan Gullick stays with us. <laughs> I, I love that. There's, I'm sure there's a Christmas analogy there as well. <laughs> We're back with Jonathan Golub. Uh, he is RBC Capital Markets, Chief U.S. Market Strategist. We are just talking about the Trump rally. And Jonathan, we mentioned your report also, A Whole New World, the biggest paradigm shift since Reagan. Let's talk now a little bit more specifically about the sectors that could win further. So I know you mentioned two small caps, financial, uh, those two, well, one's an industry, the other one is just small caps, but they're leading the broader market up. Are they automatically the front ones in line to benefit in 2017? I, I think that those are the, the easy one. I mean, the, the, the financial sector has three benefits. I mean, you have the potential for less regulation. This is the most overregulated um, sector, so there's a, a benefit um, there. They benefit from rising interest rates, and interest rates are up. Um, you know, on a ten-year bond, they've nearly doubled since um, July, which is is a huge win. And then they also win when the economy is getting better because people are more likely to go and buy a home or finance their businesses. So they're they're easy. Um, with respect to small caps, what they capture is all of the things that, that are working in the market. For example, we like companies um, that right now have very high tax rates because they're likely to get a benefit from a change in regulation. Smaller companies tend to pay more taxes. Um, you have um, companies that are more domestically oriented should do better um, than, than companies that are more U.S.-based companies that do more business abroad shouldn't do as well as those that are, are pre- predominantly local. And small companies tend to be much more uh, local. So they have a variety of different uh, things that, that benefit them. It's interesting. If you actually look at the Dow Jones as opposed to looking at the um, S&P 500, the Dow actually captures these themes much better than the S&P 500 does, um, even though it's this kind of strange sort of list of only 30 stocks. Let me ask you about both of those uh things. Uh, first of all, the small caps, will they not, though, be hurt at the same time because we see their cost of borrowing is going to be going up, not just uh, for the Fed, but uh, because you're getting a, a steeper yield curve? Uh, it, it, first of all, it, it's, small companies actually tend to borrow less just because it's harder for them to borrow. So you make a, a good point. And if borrowing alone were the issue, then I think that uh, you'd be absolutely correct. But um, we also find, for example, when you have a business, an economy that's kind of surging or, or turning around, and that's really what we're experiencing right now a bit, smaller companies and, frankly, other businesses that are a little bit less stable um, tend to lead, which is one of the reasons also, Mike, that you have brick-and-mortar retailers, um, you know, Kohl's and, and Target and, and Macy's, that basket of companies tends to be doing quite well in, in the last several months, um, not because they're fantastic business models, 
but but the exact opposite, which is business models that are under pressure kind of get bailed out by an improving economy with with um, with prices that are going up and and the same is the case for small companies they don't have the same economies of scale um, they, they don't have the same level of professional management often that, that larger companies do but that also means that when the economy is surging they tend to actually lead the pack in those environments I want to follow up also on the financial side uh, you go into the Bloomberg and you do a member ranked return MRR tail on the the S&P, and you see that financials since Election Day have gained more than 18%. So I wonder how much more you can squeeze out of that. How undervalued are they? I mean, they were, if you look at the PE multiples on the financial sector, and, and you, you did, let's say, a, a bar chart of each of the sectors, you, you'd think that you made a mistake with the data. They were so obscenely cheap um, going into the election that simply renormalizing their conditions would have meant that their returns would have been way more than 18%. But you not only have the fact that their PEs are going to go up, the real story here is that their E's are going to go up. Um, just think about this. A bank... It, you know, there's a huge expense for a bank to maintain your account. They have to maintain their branch and their ATM machine and, you know, all their systems to simply be able to provide you um, with, with your money when you need it. And yet when interest rates are zero, um, it's, it's almost impossible for them to recoup all of that expense. So bringing interest rates, you know, not to something that's high and onerous, but something that's even incrementally more normal is, an, you know, a huge benefit to, to the banking sector. And you see that's exactly what happens. When on days where interest rates rise, um, banks tend to do extremely well. And on days where interest rates fall, the banks tend to, um, to, to, to lag. So. Um, the, the, I, I think that this is a, a very rational move, even though 18% seems like an enormous number. But, but at the same time, what kind of deregulation can we really see that would give a leg up for financials, Jonathan? If you, if you look at, you, you know, they're not going to get rid of all regulation. Um, so if stocks are up 18%, is that not going to go up higher even if Donald Trump does deregulate Wall Street? Well, yeah, I mean, we're not, and I don't think anybody's saying that, that we should have a, a wholesale deregulation of, of the banking sector. But if you look, for example, in the last, um, you know, since the financial crisis, um, right now the majority of, of mortgages that are issued in the United States are done outside of the banking sector. Um, and this is clearly a response to the fact that there's been a change in regulation that, that makes it so onerous for banks to do business. Um, banks um, are limited in the way that they can uh, the way that they can trade in order to provide liquidity as a result of the Volcker Rule and Dodd Frank. Now that, on one hand, that that negatively affects bank profitability, but the more important issue is, is as banks try to serve the the public, it becomes harder for them to provide liquidity when it's uh, when it's needed in a, in a crisis. So I think that um, you know even if we took, for example, a, a portion of Dodd Frank um, and and revised it to to make it you know a, a little bit uh, more consumer friendly and bank friendly, I, I think this could be a big deal. And and even the regulators who passed it, I think, are, are, are you see that as a potential opportunity. Jonathan Gollum, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Enjoy South Florida. Let us know uh, if you get the job offer from the other guy that's down there in uh, South Florida.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.